Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 354 of the podcast. It is January 8th, 2020. And joining us today is Kim Holland. He is the CEO and president of Signature Healthcare, which is based in Brockton, Massachusetts. I first met Kim about a decade ago, and as we discovered during the podcast discussion, one of my favorite lean healthcare clients uh, from Dallas was later an important influence in Kim's own discovery and embrace of lean. But what specifically prompted the podcast interview here was Kim's recent article, an outstanding article titled The Healthcare Leader's Role in Safety. I blogged about it not long ago. So in the episode, we will talk about the article, his personal history with Lean, and much, much more. So if you want to find a link to that article, the 1999 report to Air is Human and other things that we talk about here, you can find all of that, um, including a, a video of Kim, um, a separate discussion where he talks about a culture of safety. You can find all of that by going to leanblog.org slash 354. If you don't already do so, I would invite you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you found or normally find or subscribe to podcasts. Um, If you like the podcast, this episode and and beyond, please do consider uh, rating and reviewing the podcast. And and for the general podcast feed and more information about where to subscribe, you can go to leancast.org. So again, our guest today is Kim Holland. Kim, thanks for being a guest today. How are you? I'm great, Mark, and thanks for having me on. I've followed your work for years. Uh, tremendously impressed in what you've been able to help healthcare accomplish and excited to be on with you today. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And you know, we're going to talk about um, the important work that you've been doing um, at, at Signature Healthcare and um, your, your article. But before we get into that, um, I always like to let people tell their own story a little bit, if, if you don't mind. Um, you know, introducing yourself. And I'm curious, you know, in particular, if you can talk about, um, you know, how you got to, um, you know, what your interests were, how you um, got into senior leadership roles in different health systems. Well, I was fortunate, Mark, to get into senior leadership roles early in my career, but I got interested in healthcare when I was a sophomore in college and went to work as an orderly in a small community hospital in Alabama. And uh, after finishing undergraduate school at Montevallo, went to University of Alabama, Birmingham, and and received my graduate degree in hospital administration from them. That took me to Dallas, Texas, where I completed my administrative residency at Baylor University Medical Center during the early years of Baylor's expansion, both into non-healthcare business, sort of vertical uh, integration, horizontal integration, as well as the establishment of their multi-hospital system in those early years. So I was promoted quickly, rose on the staff at Baylor, and then went to um, Methodist Hospitals of Dallas as a president of one of their hospitals when I was only 29. Hmm. During the years I was at Baylor, I got really interested in quality, quality improvement. I was actually doing some quality circles back in the early 80s and then learned about value stream management and TQM when I was at Methodist and taught some of the courses there. I now understand what I was doing was touching part of Toyota production system, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but never really realized I was touching a system. I just saw it as what I was hearing and trying to implement, but never realized there was a management system underlying it. Yeah. Well, it's so so fortunate to come up in healthcare at a time that some of us were promoted probably before we should have been or were ready to. But but I uh, I broke into senior leadership really early in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, how you got exposed to TQM. But I just wanted to comment first that I I just got back from Japan again. And when I've been there, it's been a little surprising that you know, I've met somebody who is now retired from Toyota and he was responsible for Toyota's total quality management or TQM initiatives, even, you know, in recent years. And uh, I think a lot of people view 
you know, TQM is being something maybe from the past, but I've seen um, w- within Toyota and other organizations there that quality circles and practices like that um, are still very much active um, today. Um, but, you know, I'm curious your, your thoughts on, uh, you know, how, how you got introduced to that um, originally. Was, was that part of a, 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 was there a bit of a trend there in the 80s or what, what was your personal experience? I've always been a really curious person and really curious about how industries outside of healthcare work because I've always thought leaders in healthcare often came from healthcare and we were too inbred. Mm. And I remember um, a program on television that was like an hour long or something about the automobile industry and about Ford and quality being one talking about the rehabilitation of the American auto industry. And I think that was the first introduction I had to quality circles and total quality management. And I was a young, I was a young vice president at Baylor looking for tools and ways to help the people that reported to me. So Mm -hmm. I began looking and studying about what that was really uh, saw it as, tools in process at the time, uh, but I think I'd interested through the story about the um, American automotive industries, and I didn't see much adoption at all in healthcare at the time. Mm, okay. Um, and then, and then um, got interested, I think probably deeper, at some point ran across Deming's material and Duran's material. I don't know what what had me do that like seven or eight years later, but I know I was struggling to get alignment at the hospital I was the president of, struggling to find a way to um, to get sustained um, quality improvement over time, started reading the materials, and, and I went to my boss, uh, the president of the multi-hospital system, David Hitt at the time, and said, hey, Dave, you might be really getting into what's going on with Duran and Deming and doing some self-study and implementing what I can at my own hospital. And, and he always let me run as far as I could. He got interested in it uh, and started reading the books. And then for like two years, probably, we did these uh, Friday group studies of Deming, Duran, and uh, did watched videos as a senior team of a three-hospital system, really trying to self-educate ourselves. And that was before you saw much adoption at all in hospitals. And we wound up hiring a lady from the New York phone company, 9X, uh, to come down and teach uh, value stream mapping and uh, team-based quality improvement in our organization and set up a department to do that. Um, and I would say that's still late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. When you, you mentioned, and you, you, you touched on this in the article as well, that back then you were viewing, um, paraphrasing what, what, what I heard you say about um, TQM in the 80s, that it was about tools and process. But you, you came around to see all of this and maybe including lean as being as you describe in, in your article, more of a, 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 not just a philosophy, but also as a management system. What, what, what do you think led to that kind of, you know, evolution in, in your view of all of this? Well, I had the privilege of having a wife who was also a manager in healthcare mm. systems. She was a director over at uh, children's hospitals of Dallas. And mm-hmm. I would frequently download with Ellen my frustration with uh, conducting town hall meetings at Methodist round the clock, about 24 one-hour meetings in a stretch of a month, month and a half, trying to assess our organization's alignment and how people understood what we were trying to accomplish as an organization. I was always frustrated that even in some departments where they were doing great work, the people on off shifts and evening shifts had no idea what they were working on. They even had no idea that they had done a great job. And uh, I found that frustrating. I was downloading to her one day and she said, Kim, I don't know what I don't know what this guy's done, but we have a lab director over at Children's. He keeps talking about alignment and, and the improvements he has in his department. And I've never seen anybody this excited about leadership before. Mm-hmm. If you want me to make an introduction, I will. And so I went over to see the lab director at the time. And I think you may have used them as an example before, but they had had Johnson and Johnson in. 
That was that Man was that, I was I was the I was the person from Johnson and Johnson. This was probably oh, were you? This, this was Jim so, Adams. Jim Adams, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so you'll appreciate this. I went over to Jim Adams for an early morning meeting, like eight o'clock in the morning, and I left Jim Adams' office for what was supposed to be a one-hour meeting. Something like three to four hours later, he gave me four or five books to read and a message, Kim. What we've done is incredible, but this is a leadership system yeah. and senior leadership has to understand it and buy into it. And here's some books. He gave me Toyota, Toyota Way, Toyota Field Book. He gave mm -hmm. me Man's Book on Culture mm -hmm. and Supervision. Mm -hmm. And he said, you need to go read these. And before you think about implementing anything you've done, you need to see this as a management system. So I started so I started reading and, and it began to lay out to me the Toyota production system and it was a crescendo to me of 20 years worth of administrative work, taking parts of a system, well-meaning, trying to make change, and then suddenly seeing the system provided to me. It's like, oh, I never realized that the frustrations I was having was because this was a management system and I was mm. implementing the pieces separate from each other. Mm. But they mm -hmm. worked as a system. And if I had implemented it as a system, I'd get more traction. It was a, that was a dramatic event for me. And uh, Jim was so passionate, and I was able to yes. see in his lab what he had, he had accomplished. And I left Dallas and went to Pittsburgh shortly after that and met David Adams, who mm -hmm. was Adams Strategy. David, you may know. I know I know David. Yeah, he's great. He was teaching, he was teaching at St. Vincent's Operational Excellence. And so mm -hmm. I had two years in Pennsylvania to sort of deepen my knowledge of Toyota production system as a management philosophy. Yeah, and I, I think uh, th I think there were no relation. I think it's just uh, coincidence that it was Jim Adams and. David oh yeah, absolutely <laughs> no relation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny, funny. I didn't realize you were the person that yeah. that that it was at Children's. Too funny. Yeah. Well, that's um, awesome. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank well, you, Mark, for starting my journey. <laughs> you didn't know you started. I, I, I'm glad to have that indirect impact. But yeah, I worked with them uh, for a year or so, and. You know, I mean, that, it, that was such a great situation to be a part of because uh, between uh, Jim Adams as the administrative director, you know, who had a great background in military medicine before he retired and, and went into the civilian sector, just around, uh, you know, leadership and servant leadership and systems thinking. And his, I don't know if you ever met his co-leader, um, the, the, the pathology director, uh, Dr. Beverly Rogers, but, you know, the two of them together were just such, such good leaders who, who were focused on their people and systems and, and doing the right thing for their patients. It, that was really, um, a it was fertile soil for, for lean and, and Kaizen and continuous improvement. Oh, it really was. I don't think I met her, but I walked away understanding that the lab was an island in a hospital. And he was frustrated at the time with um, with batch work coming to him that he was trying to do one piece flow with and found that frustrating. And then I can't remember what the policies were, but he thought that senior leadership um, often created policies that didn't work well in that leadership environment. They did some great work, and we sent. We later sent a team of people from Signature down to see uh, Children's Lab as a good as a good example. Here's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Lean and what it can accomplish. Yeah, and and they've managed to sustain. The last time I visited the lab was maybe you know two years ago, and even though um, uh, Jim and uh, Dr. Rogers both ended up going to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and, and Jim has since uh, retired. Um, you know, they, they, there was such there was a good foundation there where their um, you know their, their 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 process for kaizen and continuous improvement um, you know was still very much active. It had just become the new expectation, and it, it had been, become the culture, uh, especially with uh, you know with, well, it had become the culture within the laboratory. Yeah, that's great to hear because I have always worried about uh, what ha what happens when I eventually leave Signature and or have we stabilized and hardwired this culture so that it mm. will remain. Well, maybe, maybe we can come back. I'm going to drop, 
Dan, maybe maybe we can come back to that um, later on. But you know, I, I want to take a, a deeper dive into uh, your article. Uh, again, the title was "The Healthcare Leader's Role in Safety." Um, you know, I really appreciated uh, you know your your reflections and um, what what you shared there. Um, but you know, one thing you, you touched on in the article, I was going to ask you to elaborate on for the listeners. And, and again, uh, for the listeners, I'll link to the article in uh, the blog post for this episode. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your initial reactions going back 20 years now to uh, the Institute of Medicine report to air is human. You know, as you were talking about, you've already, or, you know, had been embracing quality improvement and had been um, working on leading that. But what were your reactions to those reports that you know, had their estimates around uh, you know, the number of patients uh, who died as the result of medical error? I think my reaction, Mark, was very typical of the reaction I saw from other people at the same time. Total disbelief. That can't be right. There are not that many people harmed in in healthcare. That certainly isn't happening in my hospital. Yeah, yeah, we may have a rare event, but but that just it. Um, I just couldn't. I just could not believe it. In my in my style of curiosity and intellectual curiosity is well. Okay, then I'll go get the book and I'll start reading the research and I, and I will start sometimes looking at the references and going back to the original references to come to my own conclusion. Mm-hmm. I did not do that with IOM, but I, but I immediately got the book and read the book um, and then began to, to uh, try to understand the research that they had done in the two states that I think led to that. I walked away from it saying, oh, my goodness, this is a real call to the healthcare industry to do something about about a problem that's not being discussed at all in any of the um, administrative meetings that I went to. So, I mean, so um, and one of the challenges, you know, trying to go back to the original source or even with later studies is uh, in my understanding of, of, of trying to come up with these estimates is, you know, they, they do you know, limited chart review, and they're trying to identify after the fact where errors occurred and, and if it caused or contributed to death. And then there's extrapolation. And it does, in a way, kind of invite people to question the estimates. Um, but, you know, like to me, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. Um, there seems to be this catch-22 where healthcare doesn't openly report the number of errors and the harm and death. So then people are forced into estimates. And then it seems like arguing the numbers maybe causes a bit of distraction from working on reducing harm. What, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a fundamental issue in being able to see the harm that almost means you have to do chart review to get two and two to come up with four or five. Uh, and that's because maybe the easiest example, is there something residing in the primary care office's note that would lead you down a different path? Patient comes into the emergency room. No one accesses that note or talks to the primary care physician. We go down a pathway that's incorrect, and it leads to harm. Well, you're never going to see that self-reported because nobody knows what was sitting in the primary care office's note that was available to us. But I think some of the studies do assume correctly that failure to have recognized something that was available to us is a mistake and a defect in the system. And if that failure led to harm, then that was something that was preventable harm. And we don't see it easily. Uh, there's so many handoffs in healthcare with the number of people in shifts. And, you know, the nurse that unfortunately makes an error in medication, they wouldn't have made the error if they knew they were making a mistake. And so they don't right. see their mistake often. They thought they did what was correct. We may never actually know we made a mistake. Um until someone draws blood trying to figure out what's going on with the patient, and then you may discover it. So it's really difficult, yeah. I think, to see yeah. harm. And then and then it's, it's even more difficult to ascribe where in the process the harm actually happened and what the root was. Yeah. Healthcare is just prone not to see it easily. Mm-hmm. And that does mean you have to do chart review, and that 
gets you the estimates and people can push back the estimates. And yes, I absolutely think that the numbers get in the way of improvement. And frankly, it doesn't matter to me whether it's 100,000 or 400,000, whether it's the third leading cause of death or the second leading cause of death or the sixth leading cause of death. Right. Right. I think all the studies tend to say there's more harm than there has to be in healthcare, and we need to do something about it. We should quit arguing about what the right number is and do something about uh, the improvement. Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts or, or what, what have you tried to do even just internally around um, encouraging reporting um, of errors, of near misses, of, of, of harm and risks? one of the things I think we have matured our operational excellence system with culture of safety and are getting closer and closer to contemporaneous reporting of harm and situations and sort of working through that stepwise over time. We've had the typicals fill out the computer report and send to uh, quality harm. And that's, I think, a high barrier. It needs to be really significant before people are going to fill it out. And it often doesn't include near misses. It's more, unless a near miss was almost dramatic, like we almost did the wrong surgery. But, but the subtle near misses, or not included in that system. We've moved forward over the years to finally having uh, during our huddles, which happen multiple shifts a day at, at the uh, work site, what we would call tier one, we've developed situational awareness questions. And they're, and they're specific to the department and they're done to uh, help the staff think about situations they've encountered in the last uh, shift that might tend to allow harm to happen. Um, and that may, it may be direct or indirect. It may be workload issues to have more work than we can get in the people that we have. And then we have a catch program that we started calling great catches to begin with, and then realized that some people thought that had to be uh, earth shattering catch. And so we sort of oh. took the name great away from it, just call it a catch program. Mm-hmm. Both of those generate uh, eight and a half by 11 list of issues that are on our multi-purpose board that get reviewed as part of our balance scorecard system on a daily basis. And that um, is helping us see recognition of potential harm, near misses, contemporaneous in the workforce by staff doing the work. And those lists, uh, contemporaneous lists are feeding problem recognition, problem sheets, and, and uh, our our daily Kaizen or suggestion system. And that has become very rich over the over the last two to three years. We've finally gotten into a cadence in most of our clinical areas that you can go pick up those lists and see that there's something hitting the list every day. Yeah. Yeah. And is, is there anything, you know, beyond, you know, local initiatives that different organizations um, have to try to you know make it safe for people to report errors. Is, is there anything that you've heard of or that that could be done at, at more of a national level in terms of uh, in terms of policy or um, is, does this need to be just addressed within each organization? That is a great question because I think there's a couple of things there, and we're and we're having an interesting discussion right now about about how comfortable are we as a team talking about the near misses broadly. So we, we are still, even in our own organization, uh, near misses are, are more comfortably talked about in the department, but we're not sharing across departments often. Had a great discussion with physician leaders and, and, and uh, clinical directors yesterday of are we to a point with our culture that it's okay to grab stories, de-identify the patient and tell them knowing that organizations may be able to figure out who was involved in the story. And and there were two clinicians that said, well, that probably depends on whether you uh, have been around for a long time or you're brand new to your practice. If you take a physician straight out of the residency program and they're involved in a near miss, they're not going to want it socialized in the organization because it's going to impact their career. But you take somebody who's been out for 20 years, they know that by the grace of God, somebody has helped them uh, spot something in their practice and they don't mind telling war stories. 
So very dependent on on where you are. And and we acknowledge as a team, you have to be careful doing that internally because you don't want to shut down people telling you about near misses. So you're balancing the value of telling the stories with people bringing them up. And, and that seems to be a nuanced issue internally. I've thought, well, well, if you had an issue, wouldn't it be great if it was a database you could go to so you didn't have to just de-identify the patient. You just take the scenario and go get a story from a from a website of, well, let me just print in enough to get a scenario and pull that story down and go tell that story and say, in another hospital, X happened. Because I think the stories are powerful. Um, the Betsy Lehman Center in Massachusetts is mm-hmm. um, starting a website where they are going to take state reported data and they're going to try to create a way for us to get stories out of that database. Um, they're just starting it. I haven't had a chance to go look at, uh, see if they have, see if they have the reported issues in there yet or how we're going to be able to access them. But I think they are trying to get at the issue of how can we provide information that might help other people learn from the stories. And, and, and Betsy Lehman, uh, if I remember right, and, and listeners might have heard her name. Uh, she was a Boston Globe reporter who died after medical error. A uh, drug, a right? uh, drug error, drug uh, cancer related um, error. She was a she was a Boston Globe reporter, and then in Massachusetts, they established a government center in her name, responsible for trying to improve patient safety in healthcare in Massachusetts, a non-regulatory um, state-supported small group of people. Yeah. So, um, you know, we talk about, you know, changing, changing culture and, and, and developing, um, you know, kind of new, new ways of thinking. And, you know, one thing you touched on on the article, um, you know, you, you wrote, you know, relearning how to lead after 30 years of success was difficult for me and all of our team. So I, I appreciate the you know, kind of the humble reflection there. I, I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe elaborate on that a little bit and, and also talk about how you help other leaders try to work through that challenge of unlearning uh, and relearning um, different ways of leading. There were a number of think points of recognition in my own search to understand how the production system worked and and work to understand what leader standard work was and self-reflection. And I kept running back into, boy, this is really hard because I have so patterned how I, how I do administrative work and realized that, you know, my pattern is set and confirmed because I had been successful. But if I really wanted to transform my organization, I had to be willing to transform myself. So I went through my own experience, the experience of writing down standard leader work checklist. And I just kept changing the checklist until I got into a cadence, changing my daily work, knowing that I had to do that. And I just keep laughing at myself of making a checklist and not following it and then having to do my own PDCA cycle. I remember someone coming in here once and saying, well, Kim, what's your PDCA cycle for your own, for your own standard leader work? And I thought, wow, I don't have one. How, what a fascinating question, (laughs) (laughs) Which, which, which was really helpful for me. It's hard to change. It's hard to change what you uh, patterned with in terms of how you do your leadership work. Yeah, yeah. And that, and I've realized that it certainly for the people below me, it requires a significant amount of coaching and patience and a combination of both of those. And, you know, people, I, I do believe in Roger's work for change and how people change over time. And it takes a long time to have people change and people change when they can see what works and they can learn from peers and they can emulate it and practice it and see that it's valuable. And, and that is a necessary process. And some people are late majority and they're not going to change until they see other people change, which means you have to just be really patient, Mm. take a lot of time coaching. And I developed over time leader standard work that that has Gimba time built into it every day. I don't as a CEO always have time to get out in the Gimba but we have scheduled time on our calendars in the morning and I, and people know where I'm headed if I can get there. 
And I usually bring the vice president with me and I see that as coaching opportunity, knowing mm. I have much more leverage with the VP and the managers than I do coaching employees. And I spend it as coaching time. Um, and I spend much more time now coaching to help people be effective than I do actually working on problems anymore. Uh, subtle change over time. But as that began to get traction in work, I really didn't have to worry about the problem. I just have to now worry that they see the problem and then I have such trust that they'll go fix the problem if they just see it, mm -hmm. whether that's a process problem or a leadership problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, John, uh, Dr. John Toussaint, you know, has talked about um, kind of, you know, his evolution and his leadership style back when he was CEO. And, you know, he talks, he says something effective, you know, not needing to have all the answers uh, is very freeing. Uh, would you agree? I really, yeah. I, 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 I hear you saying similar things. Yes, well, it is. Not having to have the answers is freeing and I have to solve the problem is freeing. And then once this management system is really working, senior leadership is freed up to go work on other things or handle a crisis in an organization while the rest of the organization fundamentally working on process improvement for quality and safety on a daily basis because that system lives and breathes with its own energy. Mm. And we found over time as executives, um, we've downloaded so much responsibility to middle managers and trusting them to do the work and improvement that when we have a financial crisis year, the organization still meets its quality and safety improvement objectives because the people in the system closest to the work are actually doing that improvement. And we get to go focus on other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you, you, going back a minute, you talked about um, being patient and realizing that coaching people, helping people change, um, takes time and, and, and maybe not everyone is able to eventually come around. Um, one thing you wrote in the article, you know, you said approximately 20% of our leadership team chose to leave rather than change their leadership style. Um, so I was wondering if, if you could just, um, you know, share a little bit more about that. Um, what at, at some point did people see the writing on the wall and, and they're being coached and uh, th there's different expectations and like, ah, oh, I just can't, I can't sign on to this or at some point does the patients run out and maybe people are, are asked um, to go someplace else where they can still operate that traditional way? It's a great question. I was seeing multiple points of recognition. I thought from various directions in the organization that we did not have the senior team aligned and because the senior team were on a bell curve of, change of change themselves. We had people that were late majority and people that were early majority and they're coaching people that were early majority and late majority. I would pick it up when, when we would in quality meetings, review problem sheets and I would see problems that were being worked by a manager where the senior person had signed off on their work, but it really wasn't a very good point of recognition. They hadn't gotten to the root cause and they were doing parallel processing and they really didn't understand the system. And and their demand and their area had very few suggestions. And if you went to look at their area, they were stymied. But if you asked the senior manager how they were doing, they would say they're doing an awesome job because mm -hmm. you had a late majority uh, making that assessment. And so I started making really structured rounds, uh, trying to hit areas under all vice presidents and and I saw more points of recognition of what I thought I was seeing. I saw early adoption all over the organization and then alignment issues of the senior team. That led me to working with the lean staff on competencies. I thought, okay, well, we need to get in writing this, this system and in writing what competence is both in problem solving and what's competence mean in terms of standard leader work. So we developed a competency grid. And then we started using the competency grid to make rounds. And that grew to uh, me including multiple senior people plus lean plus human resources in making rounds. Mm -hmm. And we were using the competency grid to really talk about what are we seeing as a senior team. That helped me align the senior team. So we got on the same page about what we were trying to accomplish from a leadership, organizational effectiveness, philosophy, and standard 
But then I was still seeing tremendous variation in managers. I finally reached my own inflection point. Of We were about three years into operational excellence. Uh, we have what I think is probably 40% or so of the organization still really um, not trying. Um, they They just weren't leaning into using the system. They were trying to right. do their routine work and uh, do some lean problem solving just enough to get by. And we decided to take this competency grid. And I went out on a limb with the organization and said, okay, enough's enough. We're establishing is this is the standard. I've said it was the standard. It is the standard. And if it is the standard, then we need to measure to the standard. And if a manager chooses not to manage the way we're going to manage and we've declared, then they shouldn't be a manager here. Mm. And and we decided, or I decided, on behalf of the organization, that we would hold raises for a year for anyone that was had been here long enough to, to uh, understand the system but was not competent in using the system. But that we would pay the raise whenever they accomplished competency during the year. I wasn't really interested in the financial savings. I was interested in change. So I said, if you get a raise halfway through the year for being competent, I'll back pay you for the mm. rest of the year from when the year started. They didn't want anybody to be able to say we're doing this for a financial reason. And when we implemented that, um, people self-selected out. I think that was the signal to the organization, this is real. Uh, some people self-selected and were very direct with me when I talked to them as they were leaving. I really don't want to manage that way. Mm-hmm. So I I went and found a job somewhere else. I think that was helpful to the organization. And if and if I'm fair and honest and with myself, I created tremendous fear in the organization. It's taken us years to get past um, mm-hmm. that inflection. Point. As I've been made rounds in subsequent years, uh, where we weren't using the competency grid anymore because we, we did that for one year, sent the message to the organization, got people competent, and then and then abandoned the test. But people still felt like they were being graded for a test rather than coached. It was taking mm-hmm. a few years to ask that yeah. inflection point. Um, and, and so I've had to really work hard at, at uh, getting past that over time. I do think mm-hmm. it helped speed up our implementation. The other harm that created is, is I think this is happens probably in implementation when you do it across the whole organization because we implemented implemented organizational effectiveness in about 110 departments simultaneously. All up system wide, everybody's up with what I would call the sort of Toyota production management transparency daily Kaizen system. Um, where we were experiencing management turnover in those first three to four implementation years, the staff in those areas never got into a cadence of really understanding the system. So the third manager going into a unit had no current system working for them to engage with. We as senior leaders are five years in totally understanding the system and what should be. And we would forget that, oh, this manager's only been here a year. And it's a manager that's in a unit that has turned over managers every year for three years. And we needed to back off our expectations to become much more patient. We went back and grabbed that competency grid and created a two-year orientation process for new managers so that all senior leaders would acknowledge, okay, let's don't hold people responsible for knowing X until mm-hmm. they've been here six months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months. And that slowed us down, helped us, I think, reduce our turnover. We're now far enough into this. A new manager can come from the outside and learn it almost by OJT because the systems are running at the daily level in departments. Uh, but working through management turnover during an implementation was really hard. Mm. Um, so going back a little bit, can you elaborate on, or you know, can you talk about why it was important to not frame lean or, or, or these efforts as being focused on cost and finances? Oh, yeah, I totally believe that you have to reach the hearts and minds of people to yeah. get them to change. And I think you reach the hearts and minds of people in healthcare. Most people, regardless of the job in a hospital, went to a hospital or a clinic to make a difference for their community. And that's what drives them every day. And and I believe that daily improvement is 
something somebody willingly gives on their own. Uh, and I believe in this whole management philosophy of the power from a power perspective, the power I have as a leader is to terminate somebody mm-hmm. and any work they would do less than less than uh, that, less than a termination level, I'll term for anything more than that was self-will. And there's a tremendous amount of self-will that we're responsible for getting from people. And self-will has to come at their at their choice. And because they want to give it to me, which which means I don't have the power to make them. Therefore, I have to get to their hearts and minds. And, and we lean heavily into that. And I think the whole finance notion takes you away from doing things because it's the right thing to do. I, I do believe that finance will come. You DKIC organization, you take defects out, you improve process, clinical quality, then finance will follow. But if you lead with finance, people won't even try. Mm. And, and I like the way you put that um, dechaosing the organization. That, that 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 has a different implication than talking about eliminating waste. Right? Oh, I finally learned over time. Success wasn't just the just the supply closet. Successing <laughs> is a layered thing that I now understand of de- what I call dechaosing the organization. We focus on what's important. And we get rid of enough defects and chaotic behavior that you can actually see defects when they happen and see important defects and work on them. And it's an alignment strategy, but it's it's only happened over years that we've reduced enough um, defects, waste and chaos that it's allowed us to focus on on things that are easier to accomplish, but are really critical for us to put our uh, efforts in. Yeah. And, and touching on, you know, things that are really important, um, you know, in the article, you, you talk about working towards zero harm and you, you describe that as uh, a moral obligation, which is, you know, I think that's, that's also very, um, you know, strong, evocative language. Um, why, 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 why do you frame it? I, I don't disagree with you, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, how did you come to uh, frame it and, and describe it that way as a moral obligation? A couple of things, Mark. One, one it, it is strong language on purpose because I think mm-hmm. language really matters when trying to reach people's hearts. Then the language we choose to use needs to grab them um, and uh, shake them out of their current belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's done on purpose. That's done on, on purpose. I um, I went through an exercise with our managers of taking gold coins and dropping them into a silver bucket each coin to represent a certain number of deaths in America. And I used it through a management meeting and, and for the entire meeting dropped another coin mm-hmm. and said, I want another moment of silence for another person who's died in American health care. Because I wanted to get through to people. Um, we're talking about patients. We're talking about families. We're talking about people's lives. And I think we need to grab that emotionally and through that emotion have passion. And I've become to understand, I think, much more about reasons uh, Swiss cheese than I ever knew 30 right. years ago. Right. The Swiss that cheese model. Really yeah. talking about. Yeah. And, I, and what I thought he meant was the slices of cheese were things like the barcode system and the and the omnicell or the dispensing system and the electronic medical record doing away with with uh, reading handwriting issues and pharmacy double checks those were all the defenses he was talking about in the in the pharmacy delivery system but that's really only part of the story i only understood later that reason it also includes organizational impact and are you or does the does the unit pride productivity more than they do safety mm. as another as another slice of cheese or another defensive system and that supervision is another defensive system which means senior leadership has a defensive system and the board has a defensive system and media and the public and have a defensive system and if there are holes in any of those systems those are just as important as a whole in the barcoding system. I never had a fundamental understanding of that. But once once I understand it, 
Well, that means I own a slice of cheese as an executive. Mm-hmm. And that means to me, I have a moral obligation to close as many of those holes as I can in that slice of cheese, because it might be my hole that opens up a patient for harm. And that's just as responsible to me for harm that happens as it is the individuals delivering the care. Yeah. Um, and that's how, that becomes then a moral obligation. Mm-hmm. Once you understand it, you've got a moral obligation, I think, to close the holes and they belong to us. Yeah. I don't think that's fundamentally understood by a lot of executives. Yeah, and and so in in the article, um, and I, and I think this is what you were getting at. Um, you, you said um, my belief that a hospital could be error proof and checklist its way to zero harm was fundamentally flawed. Is that because it was missing that leadership responsibility for systems, or um, what, yeah, a couple what of was other things I've learned? Oh well, yeah, I've, I think there's a couple of other things I've really become to understand more and and maybe it's just the way we implemented lean but we implemented lean as process improvement and in some cases had administrative processes in that but i never fundamentally understood that if it is not a knowledge issue and let's go back to a medication process which has a lot of process in it all the error proofing and processes in the world doesn't necessarily help the individual delivering the care make a personal decision about what happens when the barcode wand reader is not working. What do they do? Yeah. Do they do they honor productivity over safety? Does the person set it down and go find another one that works and come back in the room mm-hmm. because they would never do it without it? Or they do they bypass the system because all of our systems have bypasses? Yeah. And that becomes the compliance with known rule issue. And then as I understand compliance with known rule issues, I now understand there's like three components to compliance to known rules. One is, is what are the barriers to complying? Well, that's where process improvement has its clear ability to help. We have to remove the barriers. I got to make sure the bond, the barcode wand has good battery in it. But then there's a perceived risk issue. Well, that's all leadership and that's all culture of safety. And that's an obligation of leadership to work on perceived risk, which gets you into catches, sharing stories and elevating the perception from an individual at the point of delivery that they're about to do something that might have risk with it. And the third issue in following known rules is what coworkers are doing. So we mm-hmm. have to make visual somehow that co-workers are all doing it this way and co-workers honor safety more than they do productivity. That is, a, again, another leadership issue. And one form of getting to zero harm and high reliability has to be managing following known rules. And I think that like the airline industry understood this years ago, their whole cockpit training is around right. Um, that effort. And then and then I think there's other subtle issues in healthcare we have to acknowledge. There, there are over 200 forms of cognitive biases. Mm-hmm. So, so when we are thinking about even something as simple as, well, is the behavior I'm, out, I'm about to perform a risk? We have a cognitive bias about not being able to see what we do today having significant risk related to it. There are people that think one in a thousand seems like low risk. Yeah. One of the thousand in medication delivery means we're going to make a lot of errors on a fairly frequent basis. When you look right. at it, you know, what's the chance of an error in a day? Pretty high. Right. Chance right. to an individual pretty low in their mind. And so managing cognitive biases, I think, are important. Well, how in the world do you manage a process that you can't see because it's how people think? Mm. And and I realized that, but that's extremely important. And I'm never going to get to it through a visible process improvement methodology. So we had to come alongside process improvement with an entire process aimed at how do people think, how do people perceive risk, how will people work in a team, will they speak up, do they see potential risk, and those were all, those were all unseeable in terms of observing work going to the GIMBA things that we needed to do with it. And in our work in lean, we're really different from process improvement. Mm. And, you know, um, you know, this, to, you know, we're going to wrap up here and you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of 
the results and the success. So I appreciate that you that you've shared um, you know, your reflections on on challenges and, and things you would have done differently, and I, I really appreciate that. But you know, in the article, you talk about uh, reducing serious safety events by eighty percent, and you know, you shared the reflection of uh, you, you wrote, "If anyone had told me ten years ago that we could reduce our serious safety events by eighty percent." I would not have believed it. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more uh, about that success and, and, and is, is it chicken and egg? Do you see results and then believe it? Or did, did you um, in different ways, maybe being inspired by others realizing, yes, it was possible. Let's, let's commit to it. I think it was that it was seeing results and then believing it's interesting. Uh, and we, because we are in an industry that is not highly reliable comparing yourself against the industry, we were often better than the average. Mm. So you, over years, when you're better than the average, and in many uh, Medicare measures, we were in the top 10% in the country. We had had dramatic improvements in worker injuries. Our employee injuries had gone down by almost 90% mm. for things like pressure ulcers, falls with injury, Clabsies, Cauties, most of those were down by 90%. We thought we were really good. We'd been a safety A in LeapFrog for year after year. The only time we've had a B was the very first six-month interval. We've been straight A since then. We thought we were doing an awesome job. We brought in someone to start helping us measure healthcare performance improvement, the people that are owned by Prescani now, mm -hmm. and they created a measure of serious safety events. And they told us that if we implemented calls for safety, we'd see an 80% decrease in serious safety events. I thought it's not possible in our organization. We've been safety A's for this period of time. Our measured through chart, through chart abstraction in the Medicare and other forms of things people were focused on, were 80 and 90% already lower than expected. They came in and said, wow, your serious safety event rate, the way we would measure it is really low. So we don't know if you're gonna see an 80% improvement. We doubled down, implemented culture of safety holistically, just like we did organizational effectiveness, and we saw our serious safety event events dropped by over 80%. I was honestly shocked. Mm -hmm. I didn't yeah. think we would, I thought we would see an improvement. I didn't think we'd see that level of improvement. Mm -hmm. And we seem to have sustained it over time. So I, I guess I have to say and admit, um, we brought in somebody else to measure something we weren't measuring before mm. and, and implemented things that we weren't doing before that helped people feel much more safe telling us about near misses than we had ever seen before and then saw a tremendous drop in safety events. Wow. And maybe one other question here, you brought up earlier um, the importance of um, succession planning. Is, is there anything more that I'm not trying to push you out the door, but is there um, no. any, anything else you want to share about, um, you know, some of your plans for that? Yeah, and, I, and I'll go back to a rare event for me, and I think rare for CEOs. How often does a president of a hospital get to go back to be the president of a hospital they had been the president of before with an interim gap in between? When I was at Methodist Hospitals of Dallas, I was leading one of their institutions left to lead another one. And then we decided to build a third hospital. And for a period of time, I was the operating officer over both hospitals, which included the place I had, I had been at previously. I had an opportunity to witness a lot of the management systems I had put in place had disappeared over the intervening two or three years. It was a tremendous lesson for me. And I'd been there for either 10 or 11 years as the president of that hospital. And, and I thought when I left that some of those uh, management processes were hardwired and they were going to stick. Within a couple of years, they were gone. I've never mm. forgotten that. Mm. Uh, knowing how, how difficult, I think, implementing operational excellence is across the system. From day one, I've worried about how do I do this at a pace that will more likely have it stick? And then what else do I do to help the organization 
value it so that it will stick. One of the things that we did uh, with the board support, which is a great board here, is we added two lean experts to our uh, board's quality committee. Changed our bylaws, opened up mm. two seats on the trustee quality committee, two seats dedicated to professionals and operational excellence who had plant manufacturing backgrounds that sit mm. on that committee. One of them is also a board member now. The other one continues to serve on that committee. And and then throughout the, the years, we've done lean training for our board in hopes that they would understand when they see improvement mm. here over time, it is because we have a lean operating management system. And I have those two people in, in the documentation of CEO succession planning. I don't know if the board will follow it, but my suggestion has always mm. been, go grab those two lean people. They're there for you to help you find the new CEO. Because when people talk about lean, they might be a project person, but say they've really done lean holistically in the organization. Mm. And then there's operational excellence people that really have a management philosophy and they're different. And if you're not an insider in the industry, you can't pick up the verbal cues that might tell you what what kind of experience someone has, and they really need yeah. the expertise. I've, they've been now around for five, six years. Um, so that's one, trying yeah. to convince the board by storytelling our improvements to, and then three, the work I've been doing the last uh, couple of years, telling our story locally and nationally, trying to build pride in the organization, have people feel really good about what they've accomplished have them not want to see anything slide. We even now start, have started presenting some of our clinical data with five and six year run charts because we've so good and stable now, you no longer see, wow, it used to be much higher than it was. And I'm afraid with management turnover, people come in and just assume, oh, wow, your rates of infection are really low. Oh, but if you just knew where it was before, <laughs> you might be more willing to say, when it sneaks up a little bit, you see the drift up. And so we're presenting data in a way that I'm hoping helps my pre who, whoever comes after me spot variation and trends over time. I, I'm doing everything I can to like poke at our systems that might create visual uh, ability of the next mm. person to see trends over time drift back if it does after I leave. And I think that's all I can do. Um, yeah. We have a good succession planning process with the board and the board's comp committee and talk about multiple levels. We try to promote from within rather than going into the outside. We find it's mm -hmm. easier to do that, easier to self-develop now than it is to bring someone in from the outside. But CEO succession is, I think, really critical to stabilize um, this level of management philosophy. Yeah. Well, Kim, I really want to thank you for what you've done and, and your willingness to share. Um, you know, uh, really, really, really appreciate uh, you taking the time uh, to do this. So, you know, again, I want to encourage uh, the listeners to go uh, find the article on um, the healthcare leader's role in safety by our guest, Kim Holland. Um, Kim, uh, I'll give you, uh, I guess, the last word if there's anything else that, that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up. Oh, thanks, Mark. I just uh, kudos to the team here. This is uh, mostly the team that um, I found when I came here, other than some turnover four or five years ago, is the team that exists. I think all I did as the leader was establish a system and get out of their way and coach them. The capacity for this team to to sustain change over time has uh, been a humbling experience. They are an incredible group of people um, and they deserve really a lot of credit for transforming the system. Well, thank you again, uh, Kim, for, um, for for being a guest here on the podcast. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. There's there's plenty more that we could talk about, I'm sure. If you, if oh you... boy, there's plenty more. There's plenty <laughs> more in the, in the story about what I think I've learned and, and, uh, and operational excellence and leaning culture and safety. And Mark, I really have been shocked uh, as we've implemented sort of what I would consider the human performance tools and added it to lean. There's a synergy there that I couldn't have predicted. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like you're you're going to keep keep learning. <laughs> so um, oh, we'll, I, yeah, we'll, never we'll a day, yeah, never a day. Yeah, never a day I don't. 
So let's Thank let's catch you. up again hey, sometime about the, the latest for, event. Uh, yeah, and thanks for sending the pod. Thanks for doing the podcast, and thanks for retweeting the article. Oh, very happy to do so. We'll uh, we'll talk again soon. I hope. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.